Good morning, Christchurch. So, today's reading is taken from Colossians 2 and verses 16 to 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people also go into great detail about what they have seen, and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatments of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. Good to be with you. If you don't know me, my name's Anna. I'm the curate here at Christchurch. Um, and if you've been at Christchurch at all for the last few weeks, or if you've been joining online, um, I hope you're enjoying working through our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, Hopefully you've been reminded or learned for the first time some stuff, but I also um, hope and pray that actually the fact that Christ is Lord over all is taking root in our hearts as well, that it's not just about learning new things, but it's about being transformed by Jesus from the inside out. Um, So if you were here last week, you'll know that um, David was scheduled to preach, but had to isolate at the last minute. Um, So Paul stepped in, Paul Towner, to preach what would have been next week's sermon. So we are now in reverse gear, going back to the second half of um, of chapter 2 of Colossians, having not yet done the first half, um, and having already done chapter 3. So if you're confused, don't worry, because I am equally confused, but I have two good pieces of news. The first is that um, all the sermons are available on Facebook, Um, so if at some point you want to watch them in the correct order, you can do that. Um, The other good piece of news is that our God is a God who brings order out of chaos and confusion, so even if we're struggling, he can still do his work. Um, So with that in mind, shall we pray? Father God, thank you that you are a God who brings order out of our chaos and confusion. So we pray, Lord, that you will bring order to my words today and to the thoughts of all our hearts, that you'll bring to the fore what it is that you are teaching us. We pray that every word I speak will be faithful to your written word and that through it we might encounter your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is over all. Amen. So let me begin with a quick recap of where we're up to in Colossians. So we've learned that Colossae is a town in Asia Minor. It was once a big, bustling, important city, but by the time this letter was written, it's a bit of a second-rate market town out in the sticks in the middle of nowhere. 
But in Colossae, there was a church, and it seems that the church was doing reasonably well. Paul's full of encouragement for them. The church was planted by a man called Epaphras, who was from Colossae, and we think that he went and heard Paul preach the gospel, became a Christian himself, and then took the gospel um, back to Colossae, from where the, and that's where the church grew up from. Um, but the church is now facing some particular threats and particular challenges. In particular, some heresies, some false teachings were creeping into the church. So now Epaphras has headed off to see Paul, who's in prison, to tell him what's happening and to ask for his advice on what they should do. So a couple of weeks ago, Mike talked about the different factions within Colossae disagreeing about how to rebuild this um, once-impressive once city. We won't go into that too much today, except to say that Paul says to them, don't get caught up in these distractions and these disagreements, because Jesus Christ is Lord, so live as if he is. And in the second half of chapter one, we encounter this fantastic um, hymn of praise for Jesus, the image of the invisible God, who's before all things and in all things and in whom all things hold together in whom the whole fullness of God dwells, and who's reconciling everything to himself. And that message that Jesus Christ is Lord, so live as if he is, comes up over and over again in Colossians. Last week in chapter 3, Paul talked about setting our hearts on things above, of taking every thought captive for Christ, of being dead to sin and alive to Christ of ridding ourselves of all those things like sexual immorality and greed and anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language, getting rid of them all and instead putting on kindness and humility and compassion and gentleness. In other words, Christ is Lord, so live as if he is. And the week before, Ed opened up the very start of chapter two for us um, and Paul's prayer that the Colossians might be encouraged in heart and united in love and have the full riches of complete understanding. In other words, again, that the Colossians will know that Jesus Christ is Lord and will live as if he is. And I know we're working through Colossians in a funny order, um, so I don't actually know what David's going to say next week, but I suspect it might have something to do with Jesus Christ being Lord and living as if he is. He's nodding, so I'm not on completely the wrong page. And that message, Christ is Lord, live as if he is, comes through loud and clear in today's passage too. If you manage to pick up one of the scripture journals, which are available in the back of church for the last couple of weeks, I think they've all gone, unfortunately, now. But if you've got one of those with you today, you might notice um, the little subtitle in there where it says, above uh, today's passage, Freedom from Human Rules. And that gives us a hint about what living as if Jesus is Lord, as if he is Christ overall, looks like. But what does freedom from human rules mean? I think it was clear from reading Colossians 3 last week and that list of behaviours to get rid of and that list of behaviours to put on, that freedom from human rules, being free despite what society may tell us it means, doesn't mean doing whatever you want. It doesn't mean living without regard for anyone else. It means something quite different. So let's, um, let's delve into this passage today and maybe the meaning and what that, what's behind that subtitle um, might become clearer for us as we work through. So if you've got a Bible on your, um, the end of your pew, which you should, or if you want to follow on your phone, we're in Colossians 2, verse 16, 
I think I'm told, I'm trying to remember the number from earlier, I think it's page 1118. Is that right, Andrew, if you remembered? 1118, if you're um, using one of the Bibles, that's uh, one of the church Bibles. Colossians 2, verse 16. Where you'll notice that the first word is therefore. And I was always told, when the word therefore appears, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore. So, it's therefore a reason. It points us back to what has gone before. Unfortunately for us, we've not read the passage that's gone before. So, uh, treat this as a little teaser for next week. And you'll just have to trust me that what's gone before is a reminder to the Colossians that God has made them alive in Christ. That he has forgiven their sins. He has cancelled the charges against them. He has triumphed over the powers and authorities. Because that is true, therefore, Paul says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. It seems like the Colossians were trying to work out if these old Jewish practices were still necessary. And Paul responds by saying, God has made you alive in Christ. So you don't need to worry about these old ways of doing things. He doesn't say in Colossians, they're a bad idea, get rid of all of them. He also doesn't say, you must carry on doing them to be a pious person. What he says in Colossians is, these festivals, these practices, are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. When you look at a shadow... You can make out the broad outline of the object that's casting the shadow. You can probably identify that it's a shadow of a person or a tree or a car. But you might not be able to tell so easily what type of tree it is. And you certainly can't tell what color the car is. And it's the same Paul says with these festivals and practices. They pointed forward to something. They helped people to engage with God, to encounter God, to, to live in the right steps with God. But Paul says you don't need to look at those shadows anymore. You don't need to live in the shadows because Jesus has come. The real thing, Jesus, has come to be among us as a person and comes to be among us as his spirit. So we don't need to live in the shadows anymore. Look to Jesus. And then he continues in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. The word for humility in that verse might be translated as ascetism. I don't know if that's a, a word that you're familiar with, but ascetism is the practice of denying yourself something for spiritual growth. So, for example, you might fast from food or remove some of the things in life which make you comfortable. Maybe, um, I don't know, when you hear about monks sleeping without any pillows on hard surfaces, that would be a, sort of a form of ascetism. Um, there's a group of um, sort of theologians and monks called the ascetics. Um, one of the most famous was a guy, Simon, no, Simeon Stylites. I never know how you pronounce this. I always said Stylites, but apparently Stylites, who lived in the 4th and 5th century. And uh, I think we've got a little picture of him. Fantastic. There he is. He lived on top of a pole for 37 years, um, believing that that act of sacrifice and separation from the world would bring him closer to God. 
I don't know whether it worked or not. Um, but that was a form of ascetism, of denying yourself some of the pleasures of the world, quite a lot of the pleasures for the world, I think, if you're living on there for 37 years, in order to grow spiritually. Now, Jesus doesn't condemn fasting, quite the opposite. He assumes that people will fast. And, and if you've given something up for Lent before, you may well have experienced that spiritual growth that can come from denying ourselves some of the things that make us comfortable and give us pleasure normally. But a false humility, Paul says here, or a false ascetism, which is about making yourself look good or making yourself feel good, or perhaps not even that, but an ascetism which assumes you need to do something more than Jesus has already done on the cross in order to have a relationship with God. That sort of false humility has missed the point, Paul says. We talked, didn't we? We sang before about being able to boldly approach the throne of God. If we think that we need to do something more in order to make that a possibility, something more than Jesus has already done, we've missed the point. And it seems that there were people teaching in Colossae that this wasn't the case, that you did need to do something more or needed to avoid certain things at least. And that if you didn't do those things, you were disqualified from eternal relationship with God. And by the looks of it, apart from showing off about how humble they were, always an irony, the other thing these people seemed to be doing was this thing which is called here the worship of angels. Now the translation of this bit is a bit tricky. So it could mean that they're actually worshipping angels, or it could be that these people are claiming to be able to sort of enter a heavenly angelic realm and worship God with the angels. So they are privy and privileged to sort of special access to God, to divine visions, which the ordinary plebs like me and you couldn't have, but they're super spiritual, so they have this special access to God. Whatever it was that they um, claimed to be doing exactly, they were puffed up about it, it says. I love that phrase. The image that springs to mind for me, actually, is one of a peacock with its feathers opened up, showing everyone how impressive it is, showing everyone just how spiritual they were. But Paul says there's no justification for these people to be proud, to be puffed up, quite the opposite, because they have an unspiritual mind. Despite appearances, they have an unspiritual mind. Slight change of topic for a minute, but I wonder if you uh, remember a news article from Spain, um, which came out in 2012. I'm going to do some an awful pronunciation. Please forgive me. Um, this painting, uh, on the next page, I'm looking at Jonathan, being like, please correct me, Jonathan. I don't know how to pronounce these words. Um, this painting was painted in the 1930s by the artist Elias Garcia Martinez. Is that good enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Next time, I'll get Jonathan to come do that bit. Um, and it was hanging in a church in a village. Um, and there, a local resident noticed that the painting was looking quite worse for wear, that it hadn't aged well. And so she decided, in her wisdom, to do some restoration work on it, to bring it back to its full glory. And this is how it ended up. You can't see very well, but I can send you this picture afterwards. It was... Um, I don't think the look that anyone was quite hoping for. And it is funny, but it's also, it's pretty tragic, isn't it? The amateur restorer thought with all the best intentions that she could add value to the painting. But what she actually ended up doing was ruining it. 
And that's what had happened with these fractions in Colossae too. They thought and taught that you needed to add something more, that Christ wasn't enough, that Christ's death and resurrection wasn't sufficient to put them in a good relationship with God, that it wasn't sufficient to boldly approach the throne of God. But Paul's message throughout Colossians is that Christ is over all and that Christ is enough. I hadn't spoken to Hannah about the song choices for today, but they were the perfect ones. Christ is over all and Christ is enough. And as we've already said, that doesn't mean living as if we please, however we please. That means living as if Christ is enough. You don't need to add anything else. You shouldn't add anything else. You can't add anything else. It's not that nothing is demanded of us, but Jesus doesn't need us to make up the shortfall in all that he's achieved. The gospel plus anything isn't the gospel anymore. So where did everything go wrong for these groups in Colossae? It says, if you're still with me in the Bibles, verse 19, that they had lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And we know, don't we, that head is Jesus. It's said that in Colossians 1. It talks about Jesus, the, the Son of God, who is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Christ is the head, the source of life by which the body grows and moves, in whom it has its being. These people in Colossae who were leading the Colossian church astray, or at least were trying to, whoever they were exactly, they were using their own religious experiences as the basis of their authority. And in doing so, actually what they were doing was rejecting and forgetting Christ their head, putting the focus on themselves instead. They looked like spiritual people. Maybe if they'd been here today, we'd have been super impressed by how in touch with God they seemed to be. But in reality, what they prized most was their own spirituality rather than Christ. They'd lost connection with Christ, their head. Now brace yourselves, because this next bit is not going to be very pleasant. And I would recommend, if you're wearing a hearing aid this morning, that you might just want to turn it down for a moment, so as um, yeah, not to hate me forever. I've got a little noise for you to listen to. I want to see if you can recognize what it is. If you're under the age of about 30, you probably won't have a clue. Right, let's see if it works. Anyone recognize that noise? Yes, that was the sound of my youth. The sound of dial-up broadband. That's before the days, I'm looking at the young people, that's before the days of broadband. You'd, you'd press the button on the computer, it would dial up, you'd make that noise for a lot longer than that clip suggests, I think. It was a good three or four minutes of that awful screeching noise, wasn't it? And then when you got online, it took you about another three hours to actually load up the uh, web page that you're trying to get on anyway. 
we had this um, internet provider where if you stayed online for more than an hour, all of a sudden you were charged an extortionate amount to stay on the internet. So my dad used to make us disconnect at 59 minutes and then reconnect. So you had to go to that, through all that rigmarole at least once an hour. Um, but if it made it to 59 minutes, it seemed like a miracle because usually it, it chucked you off after about 15 minutes. And it was infuriating. That lost connection used to drive me up the wall. You'd be in the middle of a conversation with someone on MSN Messenger. Anyone remember MSN Messenger? And then you'd be chucked off, and they'd be gone by the time you got back online. Or you'd be in the middle of a playing a game and think you were making really good progress, and then you'd have lost all your progress. Or you'd be looking up something for work or homework, and then it would all be gone by the time you got back on there. That lost connection was just infuriating. And even more so today, isn't it? If we're without internet for a day or two, we're like, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. I can't possibly work. I don't know how to shop. I can no longer speak to my family and friends. Will I ever play Wordle ever again? It's just, it's so stressful. It feels like the end of the world. I wonder if it feels quite so drastic when we lose our connection with Christ. I wonder how long it even takes us to notice sometimes. My suspicion, suspicion is that it's probably easier to, for the fact that we've lost connection with Christ to pass us by than it is for a lost connection with the internet to pass us by. And if that's the case, it feels like there's, um, something's gone wrong somewhere along the line there, hasn't it? I suspect those people in Colossae who thought that they needed to deny themselves or worship angels or worship with angels to be truly spiritual probably didn't wake up one day in a state of mad panic and horror because they realized they'd lost their connection with Christ. I suspect, and I could be wrong, but I think it's likely that they maybe heard some philosophical ideas which sounded impressive or intelligent or rational and they decided do you know what? I could live by those ideas as well. Maybe I could incorporate those into my faith in Christ and see if they can all muddle together along. They'd lost connection, but had they realized it? Or perhaps if we're feeling a bit more cynical, maybe those groups in Colossae saw an opportunity to promote themselves, to assert their authority or their superiority over their brothers and sisters. And they took that opportunity Something, if we're honest, any of us might do, given the chance. Or maybe those people in Colossae simply looked at some other people who appeared to be more spiritual than they were, and they compared themselves to them, and they decided to emulate them rather than first and foremost emulating Christ. Whatever it was, in doing those things, they lost connection with Christ. They forgot that Christ is over all, and Christ is enough. And so as well, they forgot to live as if Christ is over all, and live as if Christ is enough. They looked at themselves instead of Jesus, the head and the source. So as we finish today, I wonder if um, Hannah and the band will be willing to come back up and just play quietly a bit for us before we go into our next song. And whilst they're playing, let's take this moment to ask ourselves a few questions and to ask them of ourselves and try and answer honestly. I'm going to be asking them for myself as well. How strong 
is my connection with Christ today? I don't just mean how good do I feel about myself, or am I having a lovely time, have I been really in the mood whilst we've been singing worship songs together? But at a deep level, how strong is my connection with Christ today? And if the answer to that question for us is that my connection is weak, perhaps that it's been lost altogether, what needs to happen in order to reconnect? And then that next question, do I live as if Christ is enough? Or am I tempted to believe that I need to do something more or be something more in order to make up for the shortfall in what Christ has done for me? in order to make up for the shortfall in what Christ was able to achieve on the cross? Am I proud of my spirituality? Or quite the opposite, do I beat myself up for not being spiritual enough? Christ is Lord over all. Are we living as if he is?